And uh, Wendy's going to be reading to us from Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 14 through to the end of chapter. That's verse 44. That's the passage Peter will be preaching on. So thank you, Wendy. Thank you. So if you have the plain Bible with not much on the front, it's on page 727, or the embellished version has, it's on page 1031. So join me in reading God's word, beginning at verse 14 of Luke 4. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and the news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read... The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? And Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Do hear in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, got up and drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath began to teach the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. In the synagogue there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Ha! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What is this teaching? With authority and power, he gives orders to evil spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. 
Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. When the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Amen. Good morning, friends. Welcome to church. just want to say um, thank you for having me too. <laughs> it's a great privilege to come up and preach. It's a complicated thing to do, actually. I think through the different people in the congregation as I prepare my sermons. And, uh, yeah, I try, to, try not to take your attention for granted. And, yeah, I sometimes worry about this job. So, so thanks for having me. And, and I'm not taking this um, time for granted. So you can pray for me. <laughs> Let's come before the Lord in a time of prayer now. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you that we can read it together and we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to understand it well. And Lord, we ask that you'd help us uh, to respond to you in the right way. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on the title of your outline, you can see the heading there. That's, that's the sermon. Jesus, mission-minded. And uh, when you think of the word mission, uh, there's probably a few ideas that, that come to mind. The first one's probably uh, Christian missionaries and, and their mission. That's probably at the top of your list as you think about this, this word, missionary. But if you've uh, had connections with a military background connected with the armed force in some shape or form, that might also bring to you uh, minds about important missions that need to be accomplished. Uh, I, I have a little bit of that kind of background, actually. My grandfather was a commando, and so I've grown up hearing war stories and, and thinking about, um, yeah, those kinds of things a bit. And uh, I read recently, because I, I do a little bit of reading on this type of thing, you'll think I'm a bit crazy from time to time. Uh, this is a book called Who Dares Wins, SAS, Leadership Secrets, from the special forces and a couple of hard men on the front. Yeah. You're going to get a bit of that this morning. <laughs> I recently read in there that, that one of the strategies that the special forces soldiers uh, adopt is to try to state their mission very clearly and then once they've got their mission, they repeat it again so that they can firm up exactly what they're going to do. Apparently, they want to keep their mission plan front and centre so that they that, that guides all of their actions 
And in that particular book, um, one of the authors, Colin McLaughlin, who's a Scotsman, he wrote about the importance of mission. He recounted a time when uh, he and a, a fellow soldier were actually captured and were behind enemy lines, and they were distressed, which is understandable. And Colin noted, to regain control, I returned my focus to the mission in hand. Even though part of our mission had been completed, we were only halfway through our task at that point. We had to return to base camp. We had to return to base camp. Worrying about my parents and their grief wasn't going to save either of us. A chance to alert the British forces might present itself. One of us might even discover a way of leaving signals, clues as to where we were being held. But our end game was always the same. We had to return to base camp. Now, just so I don't leave you hanging here, folks, just uh, the good news was that I think uh, some tank broke through a wall and um, managed to capture these guys before they, things got more complicated, uh, and they did make it back to base camp. They completed the mission. Some situations are critical, aren't they, in life? And maintaining our focus on the mission can make the difference, can't it, in achieving the mission, maintaining that focus. And I'm going to turn now as we think about God's word and the mission of Jesus. We've looked at the life of Jesus through Luke's gospel and we've seen there's been quite a, quite a build-up to his mission as the son of God. As we've read the Bible, we've seen that Jesus is dedicated to God and he's unwavering in his dedicated to God's mission. Last week we saw that Jesus overcame Satan in his time of testing and he maintained his resolve, didn't he, to be the faithful son of God. And today, this week, Luke zooms in. If this is like a, a camera angle, it'd be zooming into his hometown of Nazareth to a synagogue there. But what exactly does Jesus have in mind as he establishes his mission? What was the mission of Jesus, the son of God? And was his mission the same one that his listeners were uh, expecting and hoping for? Were they identical? Well, if you turn in your outlines, you can see we're at point number one. In chapter 4, 14 to 30, his mission is announced. In verses 14 to 15, Jesus is pictured as a travelling preacher. Luke tells us it's in the power of the Spirit of God that Jesus has been teaching up north in Israel, around the synagogues in the region of Galilee. So this is this has started. But in our account today, we, we start to hear firsthand of what Jesus says in one of the synagogues as he speaks. And so Luke zones in uh, to the synagogue there, where the faithful gather to hear God's word. And Jesus is handed a scroll. He finds the section which we have in our Bibles as Isaiah chapter 61, and he uh, hands the scroll back to the attendant and gets ready to sit down and teach about the passage that he reads, the passage that was read by Wendy earlier today. Now, our custom is uh, for me to stand and for you to sit, but for, for them, the custom was for, for the preacher to sit. I wonder if we could uh, make some changes over time. <laughs> no, you don't all have to stand. Well, let's look closely at um, what happens next. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, 
the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. That word's also the, re the re release word. And recovery of sight for the blind. To release the oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It seems like a very big moment, doesn't it? When we read it, it's almost like we're invited into the action there. As, as we see there, their eyes are fastened on him and uh, they're anticipating what he's going to say, and we do too. Isaiah 61 refers to God's king, the, the anointed one. The spirit of the Lord has uh, anointed this person. And he, uh, he's saying, Jesus is actually reflecting on his life too because he's just not long ago been baptised and the spirit descends on him uh, like a dove. He's anointed. And uh, as Jesus reads this passage and says later it's fulfilled in his hearing, when we read the word me, it comes up three times. The spirit of the Lord is on me. He's anointed me. He sent me. And so Jesus is speaking about this mission is his. Well, the Messiah, the anointed one, has a special job to do, doesn't he? And it involves preaching and proclaiming. You see it there? Uh, to preach good news to the poor, proclaim freedom, and uh, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. So this is, this is a, a, a role that Jesus is going to have. He's going to be a preacher, a proclaimer. And in particular, this message is going to go out uh, not just to leaders and rulers, but it's going out to all kinds of people, and in particular to the poor. Now, in the time of Jesus, uh, people were considered poor from uh, a number of points of view. It wasn't just uh, how much uh, disposable income they had, how much money. One commentator, uh, Joel Green, who I read, notes that uh, in that society, poverty also was bound up with people's education, their gender, family heritage, their religious purity uh, and their job. And the point is, is, in that society, but also in our society as well, poverty is more than just money. And people could have found themselves uh, in very difficult situations, poor situations, to the extent that they've been marginalised from their community. And so some uh, were outcast for various reasons. Perhaps they might have had a particular disease or other problems. And yet what we see is Jesus comes to preach, to proclaim uh, good news to all kinds of people, in particular these outcasts. Furthermore, Jesus, as the spirit-anointed one, comes to proclaim release for prisoners and recovery of sight. I'll just focus on the topic about sight for the moment. Naturally, we could think of uh, recovery of sight as people being blind and being able to see again. But this also contains the idea of uh, being enlightened and experiencing a, a knowledge of God's salvation and being included into his family. And this uh, idea of being enlightened is actually picked up 
uh, when Jesus is a baby at the temple with Simeon in verses uh, 29 32, I think, chapter 2. Sovereign Lord, as you've promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And so there's, there's a, the idea that the Messiah figure, he's going to recover sight uh, physically, but he's also going to shed light on the knowledge of salvation. He's going to enlighten people. Of their, they're able to know the Lord through faith in him. And finally, we get the note about the release from uh, for prisoners and the oppressed. And this, uh, this terminology about release, uh, it's good being able to read the Greek. You can actually trace these words where they come up, the specific word uh, through the Bible. And it's a word that gets used in different ways. This release word has got to do with uh, the forgiveness of sins. It's the word that John the Baptist had, uh, a baptism for the forgiveness of sins, the release of sins. Uh, later in the Great Commission, uh, repentance for the forgiveness of sins, this is a release, is preached to all nations. Um, and so this idea of, uh, of release, it also contains the idea of releasing people from their sin. It contains the idea also of bondage, such as being imprisoned or bound by Satan or even bound by certain sickness. And it's got the idea of being freed from debt. And that's linked to the Old Testament idea of the year of Jubilee when people uh, had get debts cancelled and ancestral properties were returned to the families. And that's highlighted there in the next verse, in verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. That's the year of release. Now, whether that uh, Jubilee year was celebrated consistently or not, the spirit of it was to uh, cancel debts and pass lands back to the families. This idea of release and cancelling of debts extends even, even greater in the, uh, in the section of Isaiah 61. There's an anticipation of uh, release from exile in Babylon. The jubilee moment for the nation was when they're going to be uh, released out of bondage in their captivity and experience uh, God's forgiveness in that sense as they returned home to the Lord. And Jesus, uh, as we'll see, extends this idea of God's release, God's favour, the time of God's forgiveness as happening in his ministry for all kinds of people. In verse 20 we read, The eyes of everyone in the synagogue was fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. God's salvation was on offer for all those who came to Jesus then and there and God's offer of salvation through faith in Jesus continues today, doesn't it? Jesus had a broad message of salvation. He came to bring salvation, the forgiveness of sins, the inclusion into the family of God of all kinds of people from all sorts of backgrounds and a taste of the kingdom of God, a taste when there would be no longer any more sin, sickness and chaos and disorder would be a thing of the past because God's favour continues. This is what Jesus is bringing in, the kingdom of God, and it's breaking in on the present. 
Well, this message was initially received pretty well by the folks of his hometown, wasn't it? If you have a look at verse 22, it says, All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. And yet they may have been hoping for some extra special treatment from Jesus. Uh, verse 23, Jesus said to them, Surely you'll quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Perhaps they're expecting uh, big things from Jesus because he's their hometown boy. Uh, maybe they want to be on the inside running for his some kind of blessing from him, some kind of deliverance. Well, what happens to their reaction? As my father would say, the dream turns sour. Uh, it seems to change, doesn't it, their reaction? When Jesus speaks about God saving people in the past, God saved people in the past through his prophets when they were active, the prophets Elijah and Elisha. And the people that were getting saved were people who weren't considered members of the people of God. The message about God healing Naaman the Syrian, the commander of the army of the enemy, really seems to tick the crowd off. And in the next few verses, we see they react badly to Jesus and seek to throw him off the edge of the cliff, to throw him down. And yet, in a miraculous way, um, it reminds us actually when the devil tempts Jesus to throw himself off the temple. Um, but here, they're seeking to throw him off and, and God protects him. He trusts God and in a miraculous way, he passes through their midst. Jesus had a broader view of God's role for him to be the Messiah than the people of his hometown had. It wasn't about releasing them from oppressors like the Romans and punting them out of the land. And it wasn't only about the mission to save Israel. It was a broader mission than that. Jesus had in mind restoring all kinds of people to relationship with God from different backgrounds. He came to bring in the time of God's favour, forgiveness for Jews and for Gentiles. And we'll see at the end of the story how Jesus ultimately carries out that mission willingly, laying down his life as a good shepherd for his sheep. But let's think carefully now for a moment in application about what is our mission today. We've seen something of the mission of Jesus, but what is our mission today? We all have various missions at times, don't we? Even that terminology, it's a bit of a mish, is what the concreters say uh, when it's a big job to concrete. Sometimes the expression missions used in general ways at my house as well. Joanne can be on a mission to get the clothes off the line before it rains. And usually she enlists us, a few of us in that mission as well. Quick, get the clothes in. There's the mission. School teachers have the mission of getting through the curriculum. But not just that. The mission's accomplished when the students actually understand what's in the curriculum. But here in God's word, we see that Jesus is mission. It's far more deeper and profound than our little missions in life when we use that word. In this fallen world that can be short, nasty at times and brutish, Jesus offers us hope, doesn't he? His mission is the critical one. It was the time to bring in God's favour. Restoring people to fellowship with God, that's the key mission. As people came to know 
Jesus as the Son of God, the King of Israel, the Lord's Messiah, they came to realise he was their suffering servant to bear their sins and they benefit from his mission. We benefit from his mission as we enjoy the forgiveness of our sins and life with God too. It's a rich mission. And we're going to think a little more about this mission uh, later in the sermon. But for now, we see that Jesus has the authority, doesn't he, to carry out this mission. In the next section, point two, if you're following along with me. In verses 31 to 41, we encounter a great deal of activity as Jesus embarks on his mission as the Son of God, the Messiah of Isaiah 61. Earlier we read that he came to fulfil that role of Messiah that, he, that was set out in the scroll. He's announced that the Spirit, Spirit of the Lord's on him to bring good news, to proclaim freedom, to release and to recover. But what were the people of his time expecting that he was going to do in that mission? The fact is, for some time now, they'd uh, had Romans occupying their land... Their overarching ruler wasn't a God's king, but it was Caesar, the pagan ruler. And if they were looking for good news, freedom, release and recovery, some of that hope would have included release from life under the Romans. And some of that hope's actually spelt out later in Luke's Gospel when uh, on the road to Emmaus you've got Cleopas and someone else's name we don't get, where we read a conversation between the two of them with uh, Jesus, they don't realise they're talking to Jesus, and one of them says, we'd hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. So they're thinking of redemption in terms of just getting rid of these oppressors. And so Jesus comes to, to release from oppression, but it's not what they're expecting. For in verses 31 to 41, we see that Jesus is very clear about his mission as the Messiah, carrying out his mission with authority, in his teaching, and I've got these little um, spots on your bulletin too if you want to fill in the gaps, uh, in his teaching, over evil and over sickness. As Jesus preaches and teaches and proclaims, people are impressed. In verse 31, we'll pick it up there if you're following along. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. And they were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority as the faithful son of god as the lord's messiah the anointed one jesus comes to preach and proclaim he speaks with authority the authority of god when he speaks about redemption again jesus reveals something of who he is as god's messiah in verse 35 following when he releases a man oppressed from demon possession we don't see this every day let's read what happens here verse 35 be quiet, Jesus said sternly, come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, what words these are, with authority and power he gives orders to unclean spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. The message that Luke's giving us here is that Jesus is the Lord's Messiah, that he has such authority that he can speak just with a word. He doesn't use any mumbo-jumbo or any long kind of spells or anything like that. And he overcomes evil opposition. He, he releases the oppressed. He's carrying out his mission. 
Once more, Jesus reveals that he's fulfilling the role of this Messiah uh, with respect to releasing the oppressed, in this case, uh, from sickness. And we'll, we note that uh, Peter's mother-in-law is struck down with a, a fever uh, in that time. I've heard that the, the, the medicine was just the history of the placebo effect. They didn't have a lot of great medicine in those days. Uh, and so Peter's mother-in-law is at risk of dying. And yet, into the chaos of this fallen world, Jesus, the Son of God, brings a taste of the kingdom of God, breaking in on the present. Uh, in verse 39, he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them, which is quite a nice touch too, isn't it? No sooner she, I think it's more of a way of saying she's had complete recovery. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. As God's Messiah, Luke records an account of Jesus' authority as he establishes God's good order and overcomes the tyranny of sickness and sin in a disordered world. And the message here is that God's kingdom is breaking in on the present in the ministry of Jesus and Jesus himself puts it by saying, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today is the day of salvation, is what he's saying to the people. Well, we can rely on Jesus to accomplish his mission, can't we? We can see in this uh, something of his authority to carry out that mission. What were Luke's original readers, Theophilus, and those who would have read this manuscript to make of this message? What did this part of God's word offer to them and, and what does it offer to us? Well, the first readers, the early church, uh, were originally thought of as a sect of the Jews. They thought of themselves not as the Jews but as the people of Jesus. And some who had Gentile backgrounds didn't think of themselves necessarily primarily as Romans or Greeks but they thought of themselves as the followers of Jesus. But in that world of... Um, I guess, complexity for them. They didn't fit in e easily in any place, did they? Uh, and so this passage makes it clear to them that they can find secure hope in Jesus. He is the authority to overcome. Jesus has the authority not only to have brought in the kingdom, he's going to bring it in at the end when he returns. And so this message is a message about confidence that we can have in Jesus and his authority to carry out his mission. And today uh, we also find ourselves uh, in a situation where, at least in Australia, uh, Christian influence seems to be declining as well. Uh, we can find ourselves experiencing hardship and hostility in a fallen world also. But we have confidence in Jesus, his authority to overcome chaos and disorder and his authority to establish God's mission. We can be confident that he'll return again and take us to be with the Lord. As we think about even our experience, increasingly in a, in a society uh, that's growing, it seems, in its values further apart from the values handed down in the Word of God, uh, we take encouragement from seeing the authority of Jesus. I was going to note that uh, increasingly we find ourselves in a atheistic, secular, humanist society where people think they're the measure of all things, 
God's views on the sanctity of human life seem to be undermined in law after law. The values that are handed down in God's word, which represent Christian maturity and good ways to live, are challenged. Christians are challenged to put to death sin. That's, our, that's one of our jobs, isn't it? To think about sin in our lives and turn away from sin to, to sin and say no and, and to practice being godly. I think that's what Colin Buchanan's sin saying about. Uh, but that challenge is laughed at in society by people who don't even believe there is sin. They tell us, they tell me, this is what I'm told, they don't believe in the concept of sinful behaviour. And that's because if there's sinful behaviour, there'd have to be a God whom we sin against. So I'm told that there's just behaviour. You know, when the Twin Towers got knocked down, um, by people in jets. I mean, I don't think that's just behaviour. I think that's evil behaviour. Uh, just think, this kind of thing, when people start to find maybe damage towards themselves, they start to understand maybe what sin is about a little bit more. In any case, according to McCrindle Research, in the year 1911, 96% of the Australian population identified themselves as um, belonging to the religion of Christianity. And since then, do you know what that number's declined to? Well, you can... You probably won't get the statistic right, but it's 61.1% uh, in 2011 census. There's only... There's a decline in, uh, in our population as, as people professing to be Christians in Australia. Now, some of those people early on might have just been nominal Christians. They just turned up to church because that's what you did. Uh, certainly, we look like over time Christians might find ourselves being a little more marginalised, maybe a little more like the, the early church where they didn't fit in with the Jews and they didn't fit in with the, the Romans and the Greeks. Uh, and we can find ourselves discouraged in a fallen world, a bit more marginalised. And yet, God's word speaks to us, doesn't it? We see the authority of Jesus in this passage today, nothing stopping him. He will complete his mission. And he does complete his mission. And we can, be, we can take some encouragement from that to remember he will return to bringing God's kingdom all together. And so there's a bit of encouragement for us, friends, as we see the authority of Jesus, that, that, that breeds our confidence in him bringing us salvation too. And so we look forward to salvation. Well, Jesus offers us life through his message. In verses 42 to 44, we see the priorities of Jesus. And a few things stand out, don't they? Number one, Jesus goes to a desolate place, away from the crowds. He takes time out, it seems, to spend in communion with God. He makes a priority of his relationship with the Lord. Number two, the crowds, although they, they want him to be with him, they, they want to prevent him from leaving, his agenda isn't determined by the crowds, is it? Jesus instead defines his mission to the crowds. He doesn't let them set his agenda. In verse 43, he says, It's necessary for me to preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also. So long, crowds. I'm not setting up camp here for long. Other people need to hear the good news of salvation as well. And the point number three is that his mission is isn't a silent mission, is it? 
Jesus doesn't simply perform miraculous signs and wonders. It's not just as though he comes and does signs and wonders and he's, he's silent, you know, he's a big question mark. Oh, what's he doing? Uh, his signs and wonders accompany this message of the kingdom of God that Jesus is bringing in this time of God's redemption, the forgiveness of sins and the kingdom of come. Jesus comes to share the message of the kingdom, he says, because for this purpose I was sent. He's, he's coming to give people the good news and, and hope of life with God. In application point, we'll note that Christianity is not a silent mission. A few years ago, I went to a beach mission and people were talking about the idea of whether we just do good things and be like a big question mark, you know. wonder why they're good people, you know, and hopefully people just ask. Well, it's not that simple. Jesus doesn't do that. He explains what he's doing. And I've heard it said that Christians and Christianity only offers people words. They just offer them words, is what they say. They're only just offering them words. Well, here we're seeing that Jesus is actually offering words of eternal life. He's not just offering words. He's offering a relationship with God to be brought about. We're offered salvation from sin, salvation from this fallen world, and life with God under the kingship of Jesus. It's incorrect to say that Christians only offer words. Uh, we're offered life with God. I was thinking about this when I gave my marriage vows to Joanne and she gave hers. Was I just offering vows to Joanne and she was just offering words to me? No, I was getting a wife and uh, that was, that was pretty... It wasn't just words. Okay, in conclusion now, you've done a very good job of listening to a long sermon. Uh, Mission-minded. There we go, you find the spot in the conclusion. We've heard about Jesus' mission, but what about our mission? I'm going to get controversial now. This is going to be fun. Something that I've noticed as I read the newspapers from time to time is about the great mission of salvation today. And what is it? What's the great mission today? What's the great salvation mission? It's climate change, isn't it? There's the mission. And as I understand it, the climate activists are evangelists for the mission to reduce humanity's impact on climate change. I've got you listening, haven't I? Well, what do you think of that mission, the climate change mission? To not get on boards, boots and all, with the uh, climate change mission can leave one open to the charge of being a climate denier. Ah, the climate deniers. They're just a hater of the next generation. They don't care if the sea levels rise. That's the kind of passion that I've seen. Yeah, just to uh, define myself here nice and carefully, I think God's word does actually speak about our responsibility to be good stewards of God's good creation. I think the Bible does actually speak about good stewardship and a move towards more efforts to care for God's good creation is something that can reflect a very thoughtful approach to serving the Lord, looking after what God's given us. I thought about this a bit the other day as I was offered a, a plastic bag at the IGA <laughs> and I asked her how much it was for the plastic bag. <laughs> And then I said, no, thanks. I'll get David to carry the goods instead. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> but that's still a different mission to the one that's uppermost in Jesus' mind, isn't it? 
Whatever else you want to say about the mission for climate change, and, and there's diversity of thought, Jesus' mission transcends life in this fallen world, doesn't it? Whatever else we want to say about how long we can improve the planet or, or otherwise, it's, it's still, even if it's a good thing to do, by the way, it's still a subservient mission to the mission that's handed down to us in God's word. Now I'm going to take you back to the SAS. The SAS repeat their mission so that they're very clear about it and they're prepared to achieve it. They repeat it so they know what their mission is. And as followers of the Lord Jesus, we've got, we've got a higher call than, than the SAS. Our call is to serve the Lord God. And we ought to be clear about our mission too. The primary mission is for people to enjoy, for us to hold on to salvation in Christ, to enjoy life with God, and for others to know that Jesus offers them hope. He really does. One of the reasons why I became a, a youth group leader was because when I was a, a skinny teenager, I was really grateful to find out about Jesus and salvation, and I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful for other young people to realise that there's hope in the world? They don't have to be these emos who are wearing black and cutting themselves and having an awful time. There is hope in life. It's found through Jesus. He gives us life and forgiveness, and there's a hope of eternity. It's a, it's a blessing to come and know the Lord. Uh, and so we have this mission, and we can, we can share this mission that Jesus has shared with us. His mission is the way he establishes a relationship with God. It's not just words. And we can follow Jesus in his care and his compassionate mission. We share the good news that Jesus is the Lord and Saviour who gives us life through his life. Uh, we've received the, the fruit of his mission, haven't we? Uh, we enjoy life with God. And we can also pass that, um, that great uh, gift on to other people as well. That mission is God's primary mission. Now let's come before the Lord and, and thank God for the salvation we have in Christ. Lord God, we give you thanks for this word this morning. We thank you that as we think about um, Jesus and his dedication to carrying out that mission to bring the forgiveness of sins and people included into your family, to be restored uh, into your kingdom from a life in a fallen world that's, that's very complicated. Lord God, we give you thanks for the hope that we can have in Jesus who has authority to complete that mission. We thank you that he laid down his life for our sins and washed our sins away. We thank you that he brings in your kingdom completely at the end and that he promises to return. Lord, we thank you that we have life with you through Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to be mindful of um, passing that hope onto the world as well. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.